Our podcast deals with distressing topics. It may not be suitable for everyone. If you need to talk to someone, support is available. Call Lifeline on 131114 anytime for confidential telephone crisis support. This podcast is about my search for answers. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. We started putting children behind barbed wire. All persons are free and equal in dignity and rights. Episode 3, Language, Fear and Influence, The Politicians. Welcome back to Women and Children First, the podcast. In Episode 1, we learnt about Australia's history in relation to human rights. It gave us some insight into the historical context and influences that have arguably driven our more recent approach to asylum seekers and refugees. The episode highlighted the racial discrimination that's been a theme in our politics since European colonisation. As a country, we've come a long way, but it seems that unless we face our past wrongs, we're destined to continue to repeat them. Despite our relatively small population, Australia has contributed significantly to the development of our modern international human rights framework. In our second episode, we spoke with two prominent Australian barristers and heard about some of the legal issues related to our asylum seeker policy and offshore detention in particular. The episode highlighted how out of step the policy is with our international legal obligations and agreements. As a country that was instrumental in the formation and promotion of international human rights, it's beyond ironic that we are flouting them. It's clear at this point that morality has little to do with our current policy. We've talked about how politics and ideology has shaped the approach. In this episode, we're speaking with two members of the Australian Parliament. Our guests are Anne Alley, Western Australian Labor member for Cowan, and Andrew Wilkie, Tasmanian Independent member for Clark. Before her political career... Anne Alley was an internationally respected professor, lecturer and academic whose area of expertise was counter-terrorism. She's considered a global authority on understanding the factors that lead young people into radical extremism. She was the only Australian invited to speak at Barack Obama's summit on countering violent extremism. Anne Alley is also the first female federal parliamentarian of Islamic faith. I asked Anne Alley what inspired her to get into politics. I think the inspiration was that, um, you know, there's that old adage, if you want to see change, you need to be the change. And um, I certainly thought and still think that there is a lot of room for change in our political system and having that incredible opportunity to be part of that is, is quite it's quite humbling. It can also be frustrating, but it's quite incredible when you think about it. There certainly is a lot of room for change. 
We've explored how historical influences such as race have shaped Australian policy. What are your thoughts? The fact is that over the past few years, asylum seekers have predominantly come from the Middle East, Southeast Asia, also parts of Asia, Africa. And it's hard to say what would have been our response had they been from Western European nations. We can only speculate how we would have responded if asylum seekers weren't from the Middle East, if the children overboard, the parents weren't Iraqi. Would John Howard have said they threw their children overboard? These aren't the kind of people we want in Australia. Yeah, we can we can only speculate, and certainly there's a pattern there that would that would suggest quite strongly that our response would have been different. And again, I come back to that this is not something new, that we were primed for this. This is a historically has been an ongoing kind of thing that, that bubbles under the surface of of our nation. And until we deal with that, until we deal with the reconciliation with our First Nations people, until we deal with our history of this, we cannot move forward as a nation, we cannot grow as a nation, we cannot take our rightful place in the in the in the region. And there's an interesting point to be made here, because when um, white settlers first came to Australia, you know, here they were so distant from their closest cultural allies, you know, the UK and then and then the US, so far away from co- from close cultural allies. And here they were uh, geopolitically situated in Asia. We're in Asia, but we're not Asian. <laughs> so Australia is actually quite unique in that regard, where this this island situated in Asia, but we're culturally dissimilar to our nearest neighbours, and that all feeds into this whole idea of Asian invasion, fortress Australia, anxious borders. It all fits into that. It is really, I think, you cannot talk about the contemporary situation, you cannot extrapolate the contemporary situation without looking historically on how our national identity was built on that initial anxiety about this sparse land that was uninhabited, this is the white Australian narrative, um, and that was prime for invasion from our our populous Asian neighbours. And then along come the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and the subsequent war on terror. How do you think these events influenced the way Australians view asylum seekers? I'm very cautious to draw a direct line um, of um, influence between any any two factors because there's so much nuance in this. And one of the, the traps that we often fall into when we talk about terrorism is we describe it very simplistically and um, inevitably after a terrorist um, attack of some sort, you have a lot of talking heads get on the media and use things like, oh, he was rapidly radicalised online or, you know, lone wolf attacker and all of these terms and all of these terminologies and all of these phenomenons are much more layered than is often done justice to them in the media and political discourse. So um, I think there are a number of things when we talk about um, how people are influenced and how the war on terror, the framing of asylum seekers and all of these things that the political and the media discourse play into 
extremism and and radicalization of young people i do want to make the point also that this is not something that happened just since 2001 australia has a long history here and australian audiences were perfectly primed perfectly primed for this kind of discourse we've had you know the the, the australian protectionist party said we decide who comes to australia John Howard said the same thing. We decide who comes to Australia and the conditions under which they come here in the 2001 election. This idea of Fortress Australia has been etched into our psyche, into the development of our nationhood for two centuries. And so it becomes a very convenient lean-to at times uh, to redraw that memory and it not just convenient it's very easy because those invisible connections that I was talking about before are already there so I think that's an important point to to make is that this is not just since the war on terror there is a long history here that also needs to become part of the conversation when we talk about context That's true. Unpacking our history and why it influences current behaviour is very important. But why is it that being harsh on asylum seekers is a vote winner now? Well, I think it's a vote winner not just in Australia. I mean, you know, it's a vote winner in other countries too. Let's not... uh Let's not ignore the fact that in Europe you've got um, a rising you know, right-wing political parties that uh, are, are seeing unprecedented success. I think it's a vote winner because we live in uncertain times. I think it's a vote winner because the international security landscape now, you know, whereas once I think during the Cold War period there was a certain comfort you know, a certain kind of security there that was because the biggest threats to nation states were other nation states and you know there was you you could kind of control that in a way now you've got threats that come out of um you know that are that are unconventional you've got uh, players in the international security landscape are individuals individual corporations non-government bodies uh dissident groups terrorist organizations and pandemics right we live in uncertain times and when we live in uncertain times Uh, fear is one of the most potent and powerful uh, emotions that can be exploited and that can be used either for good or for (laughs) incredible, incredibly bad things. So I think that's why it works now. And I think if you look back at history where the politics of fear has succeeded, uh, the first thing I want to point out is that it's never sustainable. Uh, governments that rule by fear don't last very long. Right? That's uh, at least not in democratic traditions. That's the first thing. And the second, the second thing is it's not sustainable. And um, you know, eventually, I think the human spirit rises above. That's a very reassuring point of view. Do you think that the strategy of offshore processing is a case of dehumanising asylum seekers and keeping them out of sight and out of mind? I completely agree that there is that kind of, you know, if we if we put them somewhere where we can't see them, there's almost it's almost a kind of a kind of a shifting of responsibility as well. And we saw that with the Medivac laws, for example. 
um, and the discussions and the debates that we had in Parliament where you know, we're arguing that ultimately Australia, these people are under the care of Australia. And this is across all forms of violent extremism, uh, whether it's by dissident groups, whether it's by the state. One of the key key parts of their narrative is dehumanisation of the other, to not see another individual as a human. And I always say from the dozens and dozens of former terrorists that I've spoken to over the years, not a single one of them left terrorism behind because somebody gave them a fact sheet. Not a single one. Any person who has left behind a violent ideology or a violent worldview left because of an encounter with another human being that forced them to see the humanity in that individual. So there is a huge value in the connection that we have as human beings. But that also means that if you want to demonize a certain group, you start off by taking away that, that human value. We saw it, you know, this was the start of Nazism. It was the, 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 to, to dehumanize the Jewish people uh, so that they were, you, you, the, there couldn't be an empathetic connection because the, the normal human response is to, to feel a connection with another human being, the normal human response. And so if you take that response away or you take that ability to respond away, then you don't have that connection. And one way of taking that response away is to, to, to keep them out of sight and out of mind. How has language and framing been utilised to support the dehumanisation and demonisation of asylum seekers? I think it's it's more than just the terminology and you use the term framing and I think it's even beyond framing. I think it's actually conflation. Uh, whenever we hear asylum seekers being spoken about, it was crafted in a way that connected asylum seekers with the threat of terrorism, with national security, uh, with criminality um, and with security and safety. And I think it was that conflation of, of them that allowed us to, in our brains, and see conflation and framing is a very interesting process because it's an invisible process. We don't think that we're being influenced, but you know, good framing is like an invisible hand. And I know that during my PhD, um, I would ask people, I'd say, okay, so how do you get your ideas about terrorism? And they would say, you know, the media doesn't influence me. I have my own mind. I'll read things or I'll watch things on television, but it doesn't influence me. I always make up my own mind. And I'm like, okay, so what do you think a terrorist is? Oh, terrorists, they're those Muslim people that come from, you know, the Middle East and they're mostly men. Okay, and so where do you get that image from? Oh, from the media. Right. So even the, 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 the whole success of framing depends on us not seeing it, it being so invisible. And this invisible conflation, uh, this invisible framing of asylum seekers as a risk to security um, and terrorism underlaid in there and national security laid in under there and you know, people not of our choosing laid in there and hearkening back to Fortress Australia and anxious nations, all layered into that, right? And it's invisible. We don't even know. We don't even know that, that our automatic response, the automatic response then is asylum seekers, security risk. Asylum seekers, 
terrorism threat. And um, I think that was uh, a part of uh, a, a very intentional, intentional political strategy to invoke. The politics of fear is is very well known and it's it's as old as humankind. Governments have always used fear or the manipulation of fear uh, to get certain outcomes among the population. And there's lots been written on this, you know, not just my work, but there's been a lot of work that looked at media and political, uh, sorry, analysis of the media and political discourse and concurs uh, that it was this conflation, this invisible hand of uh, automatically associating asylum seekers with a whole range of other ills that allowed Australian audiences to become convinced that asylum seekers were a security threat. You raise a good point there about the security risk argument and the way that national security has been used as a justification for the harsh treatment of asylum seekers. Surely we're able to adequately screen people in a timely manner and eliminate any security risks. Absolutely, we screen people. Um, You know, there are other countries that have much bigger issues than we do and they are able to efficiently and in a timely manner screen people and efficiently and in a timely manner give people medical attention that they need. So I don't think that that's an issue at all. I think our security agencies are very, very capable of undertaking very thorough security assessments. And um, I think that when we suggest that they're not, then we undermine their capabilities and we undermine um, we undermine them. What are your thoughts on the Medivac law? Did you think there were any weaknesses in the law to justify the repeal? I actually thought there weren't any weaknesses in the Medivac laws. The, the process for developing those Medivac laws was a very exhaustive process. It took a long time to get them to the point um, that they were when they were presented in the parliament and passed in the parliament last year. And, um, and so I don't think... Uh, there were any weaknesses. I think the strengths were were numerous, but predominantly I think that the strengths were that it would have enabled people who needed medical care to get that medical care. So I think that was the biggest, the, the greatest strength of it, that it would just simply allow us to treat asylum seekers with the care that that, that we were charged with. It is our duty of care to ensure that they receive medical treatment. So how did you feel when a Medivac law was repealed? I thought it was a real shame. You know, I thought it was a real a real shame. Um, yeah, I don't think I can say much more than that. That's politics. Yes, it is politics. That leads to my next question. Why did the government so badly want to repeal Medivac? Well, their argument was that it wasn't needed. Um, their argument was that people were already getting the medical treatment that they needed. Um, But we know, and certainly advocates and people who work in the area know, that actually um, in order for for people to get the medical treatment, there were lengthy, lengthy court processes involved. Um, And, you know, ultimately the the Medivac laws that, that we ended up passing, you know, after lengthy discussions and, um, and changes, didn't take that power away from Peter Dutton. 
he was still still able to refuse entry on the basis of a security assessment. So their argument was that it wasn't needed. The cynic in me would say that, you know, they didn't like the fact that they were the government but that they lost on the Medivac law, that it was passed unanimously by the opposition and the crossbenchers. Does our offshore processing policy affect our regional and international reputation? Absolutely. You know, when we want to talk to China about their treatment of the Uyghurs or when we want to talk to um, the Vietnamese government about prisoners of conscience, um, when we want to highlight human rights issues in the region, the response that we get is, well, look what you do. We need to be leading by example. And it does, it really does undermine our ability and our authority to have these open dialogues with countries in the region where we can uh, would like to be able to highlight their human rights abuses. And it's not just in, in our region, you know, in the world as well. I mean, you know, countries in the Middle East, for example. But, you know, we, we really don't have much of a leg to stand on if we aren't an exemplar of that as well. How do you think we should move forward? When I agreed to run for politics, I did a bit of research and I looked up all of this, just a literature review, really. You can't take the researcher out of the girl. (laughs) You can take her out of academia, but you can't take academia out of it. So I did a bit of a literature review on what people value in politicians, what people value in political leaders. And in every every kind of research that has been done, every research that's been done, compassion, compassion and empathy come up time and time again. That's what people want to see in their leaders. They want compassion and empathy. I mean, you look at Jacinda Ardern, for example, and how adored she is, not just in New Zealand, but around the world. And it is because she exudes compassion and empathy. When we talk about leadership, we often don't talk about those those characteristics, those traits of, of compassion and empathy. I'd like to see the political system value those traits as much as I think the civil society values them. But I think one of the issues that we have is that what, what the political system values is really not aligned to what people value in leadership. Um, and that's I think that that's something that, needs change. I'd add add to that as well. I would say also that, you know, in terms of developing the policy, I think the first thing that we need to do is deconstruct that narrative, untie all of those threads. We're going to talk about asylum seekers and then we're going to talk about national security and we're going to talk about people smugglers and we're going to talk about terrorism and we're going to talk talk about them separately. Return them to their rightful narrative and then move forward. Need to deconstruct before we reconstruct. What stories do you think we should be sharing? And can our stories create a new national narrative? I've had so many people stop me and say, oh, I listened to your book or I read your book and it reminds me of this or it reminds me of that. I've, got, I've had emails from, from people that start off with, I am a 60-year-old white Seventh generation Australian male, you think you've got nothing in common with me, but I've read your book 
and this is your story, this is my story. It really struck me that my migrant story is a very, there's, there's, there's a quintessential Australianness about the migrant story that everybody can relate to, whether or not you were a migrant. You know, when I've got 60-year-olds, uh, 60-year-old men who have never been outside of Australia writing to me and saying, I played cricket on the street on, you know, with my neighbourhood as well, or I went to this school, or I, there is a there is a there is an essence about the Australian migration story that is the the story of a nation, that is the story of who we are, that is the building of our identity, and that is invaluable. You cannot put a price on that. You cannot put a price on identity. You talk to people who have come from countries that you know no longer exist you get a sense of just how important a national story is. And we would not have a national story or we'd have a very, very different national story if it wasn't for immigration, if it wasn't for the contributions of immigration, not of individual immigrants, although we can talk about individual immigrants who have contributed and the benefits to the economy and the values and all of that that it brings. I'm talking about immigration collectively. It is the story of Australia. We shouldn't be talking about multicultural Australia as if it's still something new, as if it's still a policy. It's not a policy, it's a descriptor. It's who we are. You cannot have an Australia without the multicultural anymore. So there's something to be said about sharing our stories and there's something to be said about recognising that common thread that runs through all of our stories and that that common thread is made up of green and gold. That's, that's a wonderful image. Thank you, Anne Alley, for your insight and your knowledge. Our next guest is Andrew Wilkie. He's the independent member for Clark. Andrew Wilkie was a soldier and intelligence analyst before his career in politics. In 2003, Andrew Wilkie resigned from his role as an intelligence analyst in the Office of National Assessments, and he was a vocal opponent of the war in Iraq, arguing that the intelligence did not support the weapons of mass destruction or links to terrorism justification for going to war. He's since argued that the war was based on a lie, and he's been proven right by history. I spoke with Andrew Wilkie about a bill he moved in Parliament in February 2021, seeking to end arbitrary and indefinite immigration detention. Andrew Wilkie, thank you for joining us. Private members' bills rarely get up. Can you tell us about your bill? Well, you, you are quite correct that private members' bills uh, very rarely do get up. Um, uh, I think it is less than 30 since Federation, although I'm very proud to say one of those is mine. Not long after I was elected, I um, successfully moved a private members' bill to provide um, so-called, uh, well, a so-called shield law for journalists to make it uh, easier for a journalist to keep a source confidential. But that's not to say that private members' bills don't have a very important uh, place in the parliament. 
they're an opportunity to elevate an issue, put it in the public spotlight, get ideas out there, get the public thinking about alternative policies. And sometimes uh, governments, they either uh, pinch some of the ideas out of a bill uh, or they might be they might be come under public pressure to do their own bill to, to the same end, you know, if you can get some traction. The, the, the bill I moved yesterday, uh, in essence, it would end indefinite and arbitrary immigration detention, which is important in itself, but that would also have the effect of ending offshore detention, which is effectively uh, indefinite and arbitrary immigration detention. And it lays out an alternative framework where a strong preference is to alternatives to immigration detention, um, you know, i.e. sort of allowing people who might otherwise be in an immigration detention centre to live in the community. I note that in the second reading of your bill, you outlined a number of issues, including financials of offshore detention. Can you speak to that for our listeners? Yeah, the the um, one of the issues I spoke to when I tabled the bill were, were, was the financials. Um, Partly because, um, you know, it matters. The financials matter in their own right. And, and sometimes when, you, when you're dealing with people who may not be too kind-hearted and might be hard, you know, very uh, hardcore when it comes to the treatment of asylum seekers and refugees and other non-citizens, uh, if nothing else, I appeal to their, uh, to their fiscal conservatism. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, sometimes I get traction with that. The, the figures are uh, it costs a bit over a third of a million dollars a year per person to keep them in immigration detention. I mean, that, that's just a it's – not, it's, not, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, when you look at the cost of Australia's immigration detention arrangements and the number of people who are detained, it comes out at a bit over a third of a million per detainee per year. A good little case study is the, uh, the unfortunate Tamil family who li- were living in Biloela for, for, a, for a time in the community quite happily and much loved by the by the Billawoola community um, who were detained, sent to immigration detention in Melbourne uh, and are now on Christmas Island. I mean, they've been detained for several years now and the estimated cost of their detention is uh, some $6 million. Some $6 million of taxpayers' money to detain mum, dad and the kids for, for years. Um, you, you know, you would think that just morally, you would never allow that to happen. But even if you don't care about asylum seekers, uh, I, mean, I, I know you do, but for people who don't care about asylum seekers, you think they'd draw the line at just the, the financial recklessness of that. By comparison, an asylum seeker in in um, living in the community costs about $10,000 per person per year. And and when people learn of these figures... Uh, even the uh, the people who are pretty ruthless and think we should have a tough, even cruel response to asylum seekers, many of them just draw the line at that. The 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 budget still runs at about a billion dollars a year for um, uh, that's the off, offshore detention arrangements, billion dollars a year, and, and and you know just to be clear, our offshore detention arrangements still exist. Uh, I mean, although they're open camps uh, in the Republic of Nauru and in PNG on Manus Island, um, they're, as, they're as good as uh, detention centres. You know, you're, you're not free when you've got to walk around a little dot in the Pacific and can't, and can't go anywhere else. You're, you're as good as in a detention centre. Even without the moral and ethical considerations, that cost alone is staggering. It's very difficult to justify 
you mentioned the alternative approach of allowing asylum seekers to live in the community. With your military and intelligence background, you're well-placed to answer this question. Do asylum seekers represent a security risk? Oh, look, it, it, um, it plays well in some parts of the community. Um, you know, it, it, it's, if someone powerful enough, like a prime minister or minister, starts saying this sort of thing, some people just believe them. But it's not. It's not. It's of course not borne out by the evidence. It's not borne out by the evidence at all. The, the vast majority of people who have come to Australia seeking asylum have been found to be legitimate asylum seekers, and uh, have been given refuge, permanent uh, refugee status. So you know, again, this is about language and the misuse of language and and unfounded allegations. Um, you know, the evidence is unambiguous that most of these asylum seekers make legitimate claims. Very few of them are found to make false claims. And, and look, I, 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 will, I will agree with the government. If someone is found to have made a fraudulent claim, well, then put them, put them on the plane and send them home. But that, but that happens very, very rarely that someone is found to have made um, a fraudulent claim. Um, it is certainly not the case that there's been any security risk from asylum seekers. And in fact, the government itself sometimes does admit that the risk of terrorism in this country is homegrown. You know, people who have been born here and... And, and brought up here. History shows that they have been the, the threat when it comes to the risk of terror or the threat of terrorism. Um, and I, well, I'll, I'll probably take this time to, to also get something off my chest as far as to the, to the degree that people are, are wanting to a, attack Australians in Australia tends to be a reaction to our own policies. At its simplest, the world is all about action reaction. We join in the invasion of another country, we should expect a reaction. If you're going to go into Afghanistan or go into Iraq or bomb Syria with our aeroplanes, action, reaction. We should expect a reaction. You know, if, 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 uh, if the, the coalition of the willing hadn't invaded Iraq and occupied it and destroyed it back in 2003, then um, ISIS wouldn't have emerged. The civil war in Syria wouldn't have happened. You know, it, it, all, starts, it all starts with us. Well, it all started with us. Surely we can improve the process by speeding up our assessments. Is there a reasonable time for processing? To be realistic, if, if someone you know, get, comes to Australia unexpectedly and is claiming to be fleeing for their life and is seeking refuge, um, it does make sense that you've got to keep a hold of them for a short period of time. I mean, you've got to check their identity. You've got to check their health, make sure they're not, you know, say, infected with tuberculosis or something. You know, there there is a a short period of time that you've got to, you know, hold them close, but uh, you know that would be measured in in weeks, days, or weeks, um, not in not years or or indefinitely, because that you know that that's uh, one of the saddest aspects of this. There are, there are some people who are being held um, indefinitely. Uh, maybe they don't have a, another country that they can go to safely, uh, and the government has decided they can't be released into the community for whatever reason, well, they're in indefinite detention. And, 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 that's a, and that's against international law. How do you think language has been employed to direct or misdirect views on asylum seekers? I think of the term illegals and how it's not only inaccurate, but it immediately tells the listener how they should feel about the person with that label. Even the term boat people, I mean, what's a, what's a boat person? Uh, I mean, it's just a it's just a means to get here. But all of a sudden, boat people became worse than aeroplane people. 
Um, I mean, there's many more. There's many more people who've uh, come to Australia and and, and uh, overstayed their visa, for example, come by air than have ever come by boat. But uh, we don't talk about visa overstays who came by plane as illegals. We, we talk about you know, someone who's come by boat as an illegal. And uh, as you well know, Alex, there is nothing illegal in international law to flee for your life to a to another country um, and to seek the protection of that country. That is a, that is a fundamental human right, uh, and it's a and it's a legal right under international law. But it, it, it plays very well to the prejudices in our community, particularly when you overlay religion. And these boat people, who are different to normal people, um, you know. They're, they're so bad they would throw their children overboard. Uh, and by the way, they're all Muslims, you know. Oh, heavens. But are, are we tapping into so many different prejudices and ignorances in our community? And and, and tapping into fault lines that, that exist in the community, regardless of politicians, but the point being it's politicians who not only should not pander to these people and tap into these fault lines, but take leadership positions, bring the community along and educate them. Um, it's interesting, you know, I, I, in my work, I not so much these days because obviously the last 12 months, um, asylum seekers, refugees uh, has been uh, less of a hot topic with coronavirus, but I still get bailed up fairly regularly uh, from people who talk about these illegals, you know, these Muslims. <laughs> That's their words, not mine. But it's interesting, when I, when I, uh, when I pull them up on it, I say, well, hang on, hang on, look, look. Can we just get, you know, can we just check something here? You know, I say to the constituent, I say, look, if someone's fleeing for their life, you know, down the street or from another country, and they're genuinely fleeing for their life, do you think we should grab a hold of them and protect them? And they say, of course we should. You know, that without without exception, they don't hesitate and they say, of course we should give that person protection. And then when I, uh, you know, I tease, out, tease it out a bit more, the story, I say, well, you know, what about someone coming from another country who's fleeing for their life? And, it's been, and it can be established they're fleeing for life. Well, of course we should give them protection. <laughs> and you know you've won the argument at that point. It really is bizarre at times. Recently, we had tennis players up in arms over being confined to hotel rooms due to quarantine requirements. And this is a period of 14 days. And yet there are still men stuck in Nauru and on Manus Island. And some have been there for several years. It's a very good point. I mean, uh, it's not to say, you know, staying in a hotel room might be unpleasant, but it, it, the people who complain about that, you know, they need to remember. I've got the figures here. These are the most recent figures I could get a hold of. There's still 137 men on Nauru, and there's still 145 men on Manus Island in PNG. So what's that? Uh, almost 300 men who have been there for, well, I don't know how many years, the first of them, many of them with terrible mental illness from their uh, incarceration. Um, that all know someone who's uh, self-harmed or suicided because they, they, they could stand it no more. Um, I, I would hope Australians can get some sense of, of just how, well, they're, they're being tortured, basically. I, I'd liken it. Australia torturing those men um, and they are detained you know the, the camp might have an open gate but where are they going to go it's simply inhumane to leave people to languish like that 
How would your bill change our current regime? Are you proposing time limits to the process? Yes, you know there are there are time limits uh, for if the department wants to exceed the time limits, it needs to go before a judge. Uh, and, and there's and there's it just changes the whole dare I use the word vibe of the system instead of it being a, a punitive system that has a preference towards detention, it would be a humane system with a preference towards um, hearing these claims. Uh, giving people all the support in the community while their claims are being heard, um, and then letting them have permanent refuge and be a you know be a valuable member of our community. It just changes the whole wavelength because uh, that's what we need. I, I think that's underpinning our cruel laws is a cruel a cruel attitude. Uh, our whole immigration system has evolved in recent years towards one to deter people and to punish people. Uh, as opposed to the opposite, which it should be, which should be to welcome people and protect people. Um, you know, the culture is wrong, and it comes from the top. It, you know, it comes from the from the government of the day and the minister of the day. You know, by by either laws or regulations or osmosis, the uh, you know the officials in the departments uh, they pick up on the on what's on what's expected of them. If I can, if I can just. Just go back, Alex, to the issue of the High Court and laws and Australian law. I mean, yes, our our response to um, asylum seekers uh, and other non-citizens who might find themselves uh, in detention, um, it might be legal under Australian law, um, but it is deeply immoral and it is inconsistent with numerous international agreements. It, it, it's illegal in international law. And I'm going to I'm going to take up a couple of your minutes while I just read again this the uh, A to J the first things I thought of as examples of, of how we are at odds with international agreements and laws. Um, Australian law is inconsistent with the Refugees Convention. It's inconsistent with the Refugees Protocol. It's in, inconsistent with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Inconsistent with the Convention Against Torture and other cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment or punishment. Just bear with me here, it's a long list. Uh, with the Convention on the Rights of the Child, inconsistent with the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, inconsistent with the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, inconsistent with the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disability, uh, inconsistent with the Optional Protocol to the Convention Against Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment, and I've left the best one to last, Alex. It's inconsistent with the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which is the international agreement which goes to the issue of crimes against humanity. And according to the Rome Statute, which we are a signatory to and have ratified, uh, according to the Rome Statute, it's a crime against humanity to forcibly transfer someone uh, to, a, to a, uh, a third country as we do when we send someone to Manus Island or to Nauru. Uh, it's a crime against hu humanity to detain them indefinitely, as we are doing to some people. Um, and by the way, there's still hundreds of people, um, uh, men on Manus and Nauru, who are being detained indefinitely, effectively. Uh, and it's a crime against humanity under the Rome Statute to keep someone in um, in human in humane condition. You know, it's all well and good for... Um, the Prime Minister or, or the Minister to say we act lawfully and have the imprimatur of Australia's courts. But um, 
I'm, I'm, I don't think that's a comprehensive list. I you know, just from the number I already rattled off. If that if that bill was ever to become law in this country, it would it would instantly bring us into line with all of our international uh, obligations, um, and uh, you know, we would then become a a decent member of the international community again. At the moment, we are we're an outlier and a prior, you know, um, and it's and it's shameful. It's just it's just deeply shameful. That is quite a list of international instruments that we are currently flouting. You mentioned the Rome Statute. Now you sought a prosecution against the Abbott government by the International Criminal Court for its treatment of asylum seekers, and that was pursuant to the Rome Statute. Is that matter ongoing? There has been some more recent correspondence uh, from the Hague. Very scant, though, uh, but they they have they've always acknowledged receipt of my material. But more recently, they have uh, uh, acknowledged that they have opened a file uh, for whatever that whatever that means, um, and they have they have um, uh, provided some initial feedback and given me some uh, some idea of what sort of issues I should focus on uh, and I and I'm so I'm continuing to work on that I don't regard the matter as closed what we what we've done is to is to ask the court in the Hague for them to launch their own prosecution which they are allowed to do at their discretion and the, and again it's under the Rome statute back then it was Tony Abbott and his cabinet but more recently we've you know we've generalized it really is the Australian government um, my allegation is that they are guilty of crimes against humanity in accordance with the Rome Statute. So it, it's a live issue. It's not really going anywhere fast, but I'm, but I'm pretty dogged on it. I mean, it, it, this plays also into the broader issue of, of, of the National Criminal Court and what their role is and whether there's any truth in the allegation that it's really fixated on black dictators in Africa and whether it has any stomach for investigating a... Um, one of the developed white countries. These aren't really my my words, but you know that's that's in the in the popular discussion. That's sort of the way people criticise the uh, ICC. Yes, one of our former guests, international human rights lawyer Jeffrey Robertson, has despaired at the inability of the ICC to bring charges against human rights abusers that might have a relationship with members of the UN Security Council and. Members, of course, can veto any prosecutions. His new book, Bad People and How to Be Rid of Them, A Plan B for Human Rights, outlines ways that domestic laws can be used to get around this apparent impasse in the current international approach. So what's next for your bill to end indefinite and arbitrary immigration detention? Now I've spoken to it, table that's spoken to it, and now uh, it now sits on the, what they call the uh, notice paper, and um, I will. I've asked the section committee if it could be referred to a committee so it could be looked at in more detail, um, and I will lobby the committee to bring it on for a full debate. But the track record of these things is um, it's unlikely to be brought on for a full debate. Um, but I will lobby. To see that done, you know, I'd, I'd, and if you, any of your listeners uh, are inclined to, you know, contact their local federal MP or senator and say they're aware of this bill, and uh, they want to see it brought on for a full debate. Well, we'll put some information up on our social pages to help listeners support the full debate of your bill. What's it going to take 
to change the policy? Look, I, I think uh, well, we can't we can't erase history. So no matter what happens from here, um, our response to asylum seekers up to this point will forever be one of the the darkest marks in our in our history, and one of the most shameful episodes in our history. And regrettably, we can never disappear that. Um, I do worry that for the foreseeable future, nothing much is going to change because so long as the government and the alternative government have much the same set of policies, then there's no alternative set of policies. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very critical of the, obviously the, uh, the uh, Liberal National Coalition government, but we shouldn't let the Labor Party off the hook either. They still support mandatory detention uh, offshore processing, towbacks, and so on. So nothing's going to change until we get, until the government changes its policies, or the alternative government changes its policies and wins an election. So in the short term, I feel I feel quite pessimistic. I mean, I, I think I think it was such a sad day when, uh, well, it was a fabulous day when the Labor opposition worked with uh, us crossbenchers and got the Medivac law up. And um, huge accolades to Karen Phelps for driving that process. Um, but, you know, a shameful day when um, that was overturned by the government. Will, will things change eventually? Look, I, I'm an optimist. Um, you know, most wrongs are eventually righted. Uh, and I do hold out, hold out hope that one day things will change for the better. I think it's very important to, to, to help speed up that process of getting to, to that stage. We need, well, we need, we need the alternative governments to have different policies and be brave and take those alternative policies to the election. And we also need, we, we also need to get alternative policies out there for people to understand. What can we do to ensure that the issue is front of mind for politicians? I mean, let's, talk, let's just talk raw politics for a moment because I'm talking about the government policy, the alternative government policy, and they need to change their policy. Many politicians are preoccupied with um, their political self-interest and holding their seat or holding government or winning government. They follow the numbers. You know, when they see enough people calling for something, they start to sit up in their chair and take notice. And when enough people are, are, are agitating for something, they can swing seats, they can, they can swing elections. So at a time like this when um, the issue of asylum seekers and mandatory detention, et cetera, is, it, 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 it's, it's been a little bit out of the spotlight because people have been focused on the pandemic. Uh, the numbers have come down in offshore detention. The number of people coming to Australia has dropped right off. Uh, the issue has sort of dropped a bit off the radar for some people, not for a lot of people, but for some people. You know, this is the time for us to stay active and to... Uh, stay active in our in our community groups, in our political activism, rallies, letters to the editor, talk back radio, meeting with politicians. And, and I say to people, don't spend all day talking to people that agree with you. Like, don't go to the the politician that agrees with you because you're waste, you're actually wasting your time. You know, you better you better to spend an hour meeting with a politician you can't stand who disagrees with you and trying to change that person's mind. That's actually time better spent than spending all day in a, in a town hall with people who already agree with you. That's a really good point. We need to get out of our silos and, and spread the message. It's important to have a debate about this policy. There's a number of reasons why it's not justifiable. And voters should have the opportunity to consider those reasons. Andrew Wilkie, 
Thank you for your time. That brings us to the end of our third episode. This episode has been very informative. Having the opportunity to hear from a global authority on counter-terrorism and a former intelligence analyst who are also both members of the Australian Parliament has been very insightful. We can now see that security can be adequately addressed. The evidence supports it. We can also see that we have alternative policies available. I recommend listeners have a look at Andrew Wilkie's bill, the Ending Indefinite and Arbitrary Immigration Detention Bill 2021. We'll put a link up for you to access the bill. The bill proposes relatively minor changes that would have a major impact on how humane our immigration policy is. In the next episode, we'll hear from a senior doctor who worked on Nauru. He's a former Surgeon Lieutenant Commander with the British Royal Navy. He's the most senior person stationed on Nauru to speak out, and he was so concerned with what he saw that he felt compelled to act. If you need to talk to someone, support is available. Call Lifeline on 131114 anytime for confidential telephone crisis support. Women and Children First is an Integra co-production in association with the National Justice Project. Produced and mixed by Alex and Gal Roussos. Artwork by Kerry Hardy from Black Sheep Studio. Original music by Tim Hall and Alex Roussos. Visit the Women and Children First Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. WACF Podcast. Thank you.